Our second reading today is from Psalm 115. These are God's words. Not unto us, O Yahweh, not unto us, but unto thy name, give glory for thy loving kindness and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them shall be like unto them. Yea, every one that trusteth in them. O Israel, trust thou in Yahweh. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust ye in Yahweh. He is their help and their shield. Ye that fear Yahweh, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and their shield. Yahweh hath been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless them that fear Yahweh, both small and great. Yahweh increase you more and more, you and your sons. Blessed are ye of Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the heavens of Yahweh, but the earth hath he given to the sons of men. The dead do not praise Yah, neither any that go down into silence. But we will praise Yah from this time forth and forevermore. Praise Yah. These are God's words. Please be seated. Before Christmas, we began looking at what Scripture tells us about worship. We've learned some important principles, but we have not yet applied them in much detail. How are we to worship? What must we actually do? What should be the form and the timing of the things that we do in worship? In other words, what should our liturgy be? Liturgy is the form and timing of our worship. Liturgy is the form and timing of our worship. In other words, what do we do and say in worship, and when do we do and say it? If you look at our Lord's service sheet, that is a summary of our liturgy. We start with a call to worship where we say certain things, and then we sing, and then we have confession where we kneel, and so forth. That is our liturgy. I believe that most evangelicals are either suspicious or just scornful of having a liturgy like this. They see them as a kind of play-acting, or a pointless, stuffy, outdated tradition. Or even, in some cases, I think, as a kind of immature move back in the direction of Rome, as if Roman Catholicism invented liturgy, and liturgy really just is a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox thing. As I was preparing the sermon, I wanted to get directly into practical questions, like what the order of our worship should be, and what we should say, and even what we should wear. But as I was considering these things and how best to teach them, I came to realize that the question of why we should do any particular thing in our liturgy must be answered by why we have a liturgy at all. Or put this a different way, why does God treat it as so deadly important that we order the form and timing of our worship in a specific way, according to a specific pattern, rather than leaving it to our consciences? Most people would agree that if scripture requires something, then we should do it. That matters. But if we are wise, 
we will also recognize that scripture does not just give bare commands for no particular reason. There are deeper purposes to the commands that God gives. Reasons that matter on levels that go beyond simply because I said so. Think about fathers with their children. Sometimes because I said so is a valid response for a father to give his child. If I tell my kids to do something that seems kind of random or unnecessary, though, something kind of nitpicky or weird, they might legitimately question it, and I might need to give them an answer. If I were to say, for instance, when you come into my office, you have to take off your shoes and you have to place them together like this and then put them sideways on the left-hand side of the door. It's not wrong for them to want to know why, Sometimes asking why is an act of insolence, an act of disobedience, a a way to try to avoid the command, but an obedient and well-disciplined child will often also ask why. One child might be asking to try to get out of doing the thing because he doesn't see why it matters and therefore believes it does not matter, but the other child is asking in order to understand the thing because he does not see why it matters but has faith that it does. One child is being a fool... The other child is being wise. He is searching out the hidden thing. It is a matter of wisdom to know why certain things are commanded. So it is not insolent but wise to ask why there is such danger in offering religious service to God that he did not authorize. We saw in the last sermon that in scripture, presumptuous worship often carries the penalty of death. We have to worship as God reveals. Hopefully you remember that this is called the regulative principle of worship. God lays down his house rules in scripture, and so scripture regulates our worship, hence the name regulative principle. But why does he reveal these patterns? Why must we worship this way? Certainly the answer is not just because. It is important to see the deeper reason. We saw hints of that last time. But today, we need to make it explicit. We need to ask why God regulated worship as he did, rather than in some other way. It's not like he just kind of rolled the dice, and whatever came up, that's what I'll do, that's what we'll do next, that's what we'll do next, and we're not going to include that thing because it didn't get a high enough roll. That's, That's not the way that God works. Remember what he says to Moses. In Exodus 25, verse 9 and verse 40, according to all that I show thee, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the furniture thereof. Even so shall ye make it, and see that thou make them after their pattern, which has been showed thee in the mount, that is, Mount Sinai. And Hebrews 8.5 tells us that the tabernacle was a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. In other words, the tabernacle was a physical expression of the spiritual reality of heaven. Does that phrase ring a bell to any of you? We have talked about this before, the tabernacle was a physical expression of a spiritual reality. That is to say, the tabernacle was a symbol. That is what a symbol is. Remember John 1, how light is a symbol of Christ, that is God's wisdom, the true light. Or Genesis 1, and how speech is a symbol of Christ, that is God's creative power, the true speech. These are natural elemental symbols that are built into the creation, but there are plenty of complex artificial symbols which we are told to construct in Scripture, and the tabernacle was one of them. How the tabernacle was structured and ordered was supposed to express how heaven was structured and ordered. 
The place of worship was modeled after the heavenly pattern, and so, of course, we should certainly expect the worship itself in the temple, in its form and its timing, to reflect that heavenly pattern also. Everything about how we worship on earth is meant to conform to the reality of heaven and to express that reality in the material world. But why? Does this seem like a dumb question? I want to go beyond the obvious. Obviously, it is fitting for the earthly model, uh, for the, the earthly to model the heavenly, and it is proper for earthly worship to model heavenly worship, but I think that Scripture has given us enough clues at this point for us to say that there's something more going on. I think we need to stop and reflect upon how very strange and stupefying it is that Hebrews 12 tells us that we're coming to the heavenly Jerusalem in worship. I want us to think about this participation that we have in the heavenly realm, where we are mystically joined to the spiritual world and become one together with it. I want to ask if there is some connection between our expressing heavenly realities and are being taken up into those realities. In other words, do we have some part in actually causing this commingling of heaven and earth? Or to turn the question around, does it actually matter if we do this wrong? What happens if we mess it up? I believe that the church has bungled worship badly because we have come to think that it is just our way of responding on earth to heavenly realities. Things happen in heaven and we respond here on earth, but how we respond has no effect on heaven. We've come to think of the physical realm as utterly passive and disconnected from heaven. Heaven acts upon us, but we do not act upon heaven. And in fact... I suspect that many of you have a vague sense right now that suggesting that we can act upon heaven, that we can cause changes in the spiritual realm, is somehow blasphemous. I'm afraid that this is because we have imbibed very deeply of the disenchantment, more commonly known as the enlightenment. We have become very dull to the shapes of reality and to the patterns of creation because we have bought into the assumption that physical things don't mean anything. Facts are just facts. They don't have meaning. We're all just atoms in motion. So what you do with facts is you don't look at the whole thing and ask if it means anything. Instead, you break it down to find what it's made of. Because the ultimate reality is the smallest level of reality. And at the smallest level of reality, we discover that everything is the same. It's all just interchangeable parts. And so therefore, nothing means anything. We're no longer able to spot the obvious because we're no longer able to look at the shape of creation, but only at the individual pieces that it's made out of. We want to atomize everything and break questions down into their tiniest parts in order to answer them, and so we cannot see the forest for the trees. We are like a man who is told that he shouldn't wear a silk blouse because it is soft and effeminate, and his response is, effeminate, you say? How dare you, sir? I have news for you. I have tested every thread of this blouse and discovered that each one by weight is stronger than steel. Steel, I say, is that soft? And the buttons? Pure ivory. What do you think of that then? From an African elephant, no less, a bull elephant tore up a tree with those tusks right before he was shot by a man with a moustache. So you see, sir, I have found no softness here at all. Right, but you didn't find a blouse either. 
In the same way, we have lost track of the patterns of Scripture and the relationship between form and purpose. We have gotten the idea that if something can't be found in a specific command of Scripture, then it doesn't exist in Scripture. And anyone claiming otherwise is often accused of going beyond the Word of God. People will say, got a verse for that? Let me give you an example of how dumb this is. How does Paul argue when he tells the Corinthians that women must be silent in the churches? He says, let the women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but let them be in subjection, as also the law saith. Now, the law that Paul speaks of is the Old Testament. This is how he uses that term in verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 14, which is just a few verses before. He cites Isaiah 28. But where does the Old Testament say that women should not be permitted to speak in the congregation? There's no proof text, there's no single verse that we can go to to show in as many words that women should not speak in worship. Yet Paul, discerning the entire character and form and shape of what is said about men and women and worship and the congregation, from Genesis 1 to Malachi 4, states confidently that the Lord does say this. Not only can he see this in the law, but he expects his audience to see it so they can understand and verify that his argument is right. Now imagine with me for a moment that Paul had not written those five extra words, as also the law saith. Imagine he had just said, it is not permitted for women to speak, let them be in subjection, and he hadn't explained further. And now imagine that some modern Christians, and let's make them evangelical pastors and theologians to really emphasize my point here, imagine that these pastors and theologians were sitting around discussing this verse and speculating on the reasons that Paul had for requiring women to be silent in the churches. One pastor is suggesting one thing and the theologian is suggesting another thing, and then a guy comes in and he says, gentlemen, this is straightforward. The law, the Old Testament, clearly says women should not speak in the congregation. Now let me ask you, what would be the response to this man? What would just about every evangelical pastor or theologian say, got a verse for that, young man? If you're lucky, you'd be just as likely to hear, excuse me, young man, you are speaking presumptuously and going beyond scripture, adding to the word of God. Yet not only does Paul say this very thing, he appeals to what the Old Testament says as if it were obvious to the Corinthians. These are Gentiles who were not educated in the Jewish law. Women's subjection in the congregation is so obvious in the Hebrew scriptures that even Gentiles can discern it without great difficulty. Now, it's not my intention here to speak on uh, the issue of silence of women in worship, although that is something that we would need to come to as we work through how worship should be done. Rather, I'm using this as a convenient example to show you how modern Christians read scripture and how they will not only miss clear teaching in Scripture, if God did not provide a, like a cliff note summary in the form of a single verse, they will actually accuse anyone who does see that teaching of adding to God's words. Would most evangelical pastors and theologians today know how to verify from the Old Testament what Paul says about women in worship? Would they know that God expects them to do this? If Paul had not said in as many words that women should not speak in the assembly, would they have come to this conclusion simply because they read their Old Testaments? They would not. So this example helps us to see the larger problem, which is that the evangelical hermeneutic works in the opposite direction to the Bibles. You remember what a hermeneutic is? The rules and methods of interpretation. 
The evangelical rules and methods of interpretation work in the opposite direction to what scripture actually models for us. I've made this point before in a different way. Remember, we talked about how what to believe is only one half of what scripture requires of us or instructs us in. It tells us what to believe, but it also shows us how to believe. It gives us content for our thoughts, but it also models the contours of our thoughts. It tells us what to put into our minds, but also how to shape our minds. And in fact, you cannot learn much of what we should believe without first learning how we are to think. Because much of Scripture's teaching is not delivered as straight propositions. It doesn't want us to think like that, like children who require these simple commands in order to know what to do. Much of Scripture's doctrine is delivered as patterns that we are to take in and conform ourselves to in order to discern the will of God. Only once those patterns are in place in our minds are we able to look at certain facts and discern their meanings. Only once certain patterns are in place can we even expect necessarily to find meaning in facts at all. Another way of putting this is that coming to a right, wise understanding of God's ways is not simply a matter of reading and believing. It is a matter of doing and obeying. What we do actually wears the right grooves into our souls to enable us to start forming right beliefs. Think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service or worship. And be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In this passage, the doing, the obeying, the worshipping, logically precedes, it comes before, and is in fact the cause of being fashioned into the right shape, being transformed and renewed in mind. We conform our actions to reality, and our minds follow Right worship for Paul is the necessary prerequisite for being able to test and know God's will in our lives. A modern evangelical does not tend to think this way. He is preoccupied only with what to believe, not how to think, not how to act. It doesn't occur to him that how he acts will actually produce right or wrong beliefs. He's just looking for simple commands, simple proof texts, I'm speaking very generally, of course. There are exceptions, and some people are worse than others. But my point is, if we go back to our example of women speaking in church, most Christians cannot tell that the Old Testament prohibits this, if they believe it at all, except by seeing that Paul said so. You pick an evangelical pastor at random, and the chances are he will not be able to see that the Old Testament says this, therefore Paul is right. He will only be able to say, Paul was right because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, therefore the Old Testament must say it. But he does not see in the Old Testament itself where it says it, he just trusts Paul. Now here is the point for understanding liturgy and worship. I believe that churches should have a liturgy that looks more or less like ours, as also the law saith. Just because there is no explicit command to use a set liturgy does not mean that scripture does not require a set liturgy. And just because there is no specific command to 
order the service a certain way does not mean that Scripture does not require it ordered that way. Such things are not said in Scripture by proof texts, but they are said by patterns. For instance, we know that we are part of the people of God. Just to give a simple example, we see the people of God consistently depicted in Scripture bowing before him, kneeling, prostrating themselves. We should therefore easily be able to see that this is something that we also should do, if indeed we want to participate in that one body of Christ throughout history. Now this brings me back to the reason that this matters. You might have noticed we got slightly sidetracked there. I've said that how we worship actually produces the transformation in us that allows us to discern God's will and form right beliefs. It's not a one-way process, of course. What we believe is the cause of how we worship as much as how we worship is the cause of what we believe. We wouldn't even know how to worship if we did not try to discern it in Scripture. It's not as if doing comes before believing. It is a cyclical process. But the point is, how we worship really does matter because it really does produce either godliness or ungodliness. In other words, the actions aren't mere actions. They actually do something. They achieve something. But the same is true of how we influence reality itself. Our actions don't just affect ourselves. They don't just change us. They change the world. And because we are not merely physical creatures, but also spiritual creatures... Our actions can affect the spiritual realm as well as the physical. This is going to sound very woo. Let me explain. You've probably heard the expression, you become what you worship. That is true. You look at our passage today, Psalm 115. What does it say of those who worship idols? They that make them shall be like unto them. The LSB says, those who make them will become like them. I don't know why translations insist on moving words around. The Hebrew is literally, like them are those that make them. Perfectly comprehensible in English. The point is that you become like what you worship. This is a creational principle. It does not just apply to pagans. It applies to us. We saw that just in Romans 12, that worship transforms us. And Paul says a similar thing in 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image from glory to glory even as from the Lord, the Spirit. But do you see how this connects with what we've looked at today? You become what you worship, but you also become how you worship. This is most obvious in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 to 20. Paul tells us the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not a communion of the blood of Christ? The blood which we break, is it not a communion of the body of Christ? seeing that we who are many are one bread, one body, for we all partake in the one bread. Behold Israel after the flesh. Have not they that eat the sacrifice communion with the altar? What say I then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I would not that ye have communion with demons." What is Paul saying here? He is saying the Lord's Supper actually does something. Taking the Supper actually causes us to participate in Christ. 
But that's not the most surprising thing. The most surprising thing is taking a meal with demons actually causes you to have some kind of participation with them in the same way. Both things follow the same pattern, the same mechanism. There is a creational logic here. What this means is that sacraments are not some kind of unique ritual that God invented specifically for Christians. Rather, the Christian sacraments are true and right uses of sacramental patterns that are built into creation. Patterns which can also be used, or we should say abused, to participate with demons instead of with Christ. But the sacrament is not the sacrament without the larger worship service in which it takes place. It is part of a whole. The whole worship service follows the same logic. That symbolic representation, symbolic representation does something in the heavenly places. We've seen that God gives Israel a system of worship that models the heavenly reality. He gives them a liturgy, a form and timing for their, their worship that mimics, that echoes, that resonates with the heavenly reality. In fact, we could say that true liturgy, good liturgy, right liturgy, is ordering the form and timing of our worship to resonate with the heavenly realities. And this resonance actually sets up some kind of a harmony in the spiritual realm. It's not just play-acting here on earth. It is establishing a resonance across the veil. Just like if you sing the right note around a bell, you can hear the bell start to hum that same note. When we perform the right actions here on earth, the heavenly versions of those things start to sing the same note. Yes, doing those things does something to us, wearing the right grooves into our souls, but it also does something more mystical. True liturgy is a way of expressing and embodying heavenly meaning at a mundane physical level, at the level of our world. And when we come to worship, we are mysteriously transported into heaven, or it would be more accurate to say, heaven and earth are mysteriously united. They become one together And our physical worship becomes a sort of visible host to the invisible reality it is made to reflect. What happens in heaven comes down to earth. What happens on earth comes up to heaven so that God's will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. How? How does this connection take place? Does God just keep an eye out and every time he sees that we're coming together in worship, he sets up a new Zoom call? No. Does God keep an eye out every time we sing the right note around a bell and make the bell hum? No, as with anything, he has built mechanisms, secondary causes into creation so that we can play a part in bringing about the realities that we are participating in. I want you to think about this for a minute. Our worship is fundamentally symbolic. It is a physical expression of a spiritual reality. That's what a symbol is. Throughout history and cultures, throughout religions, people have intuited, they have sensed the power of symbolism to help them become what they worship. By symbolically representing the reality that they are interested in, 
They hope to enter into that reality or even cause it to come about in some way. A classic example of this, we find this in scripture all the time, the idolater who, for instance, symbolically represents fertility by having sex in the temple. That's what temple prostitutes are for. So the gods in heaven will bring about fertility in the land and you'll have a good harvest. Something a little more familiar to us, perhaps in the modern day, would be the idea of a witch doctor symbolically representing someone with an effigy, a doll, and perhaps driving needles into them in order to hurt that person in real life. Here's another. The modern athlete intuits, he does not necessarily have this as a religious belief, he intuits because it's built into him that he can symbolically represent his past win by wearing the same clothes that were closest to his body on that day that he might represent that reality, that win, in the world. This is often called sympathetic magic. I don't want you to get the wrong idea here. I'm not advocating using magic. But I do want you to recognize that Scripture does not deny that there is something to this way of thinking. Magical thinking is not plain wrong. Rather, magical thinking, like many religious beliefs, is a distortion and a perversion of the true magic the symbolic resonance, the real connection between the physical and the spiritual realms that God has built into creation. We have to acknowledge the physical really does image the spiritual and that there is some kind of loosely causal nature to this imaging. There is some sense in which even pagan magic can therefore really produce these kinds of resonances how exactly this works, what the mechanism is, what the causality is, we're not told that. But when the witch of Endor goes down into her necromancy pit that she had dug, she really did somehow descend into the underworld and she really did call up the spirit of Samuel. And by the same token, spiritual beings really do produce supernatural effects in the physical world, as the magicians of Pharaoh did through the gods of Egypt. Do you think that Yahweh forbade his people to practice magic under pain of death because it doesn't work? No, it is because it does work. At least some kinds work some of the time. Magic carries the death penalty for the same reason that false worship carries the death penalty. It violates the principle on earth as in heaven. This is ultimately the whole point of creation itself. Pagan magic and false worship are anti-creational. They are contrary to nature. But true worship is really the true magic of creation. The liturgical practice is true magic. It really does something mystically to us and through us to the world. But if that is true, then getting worship right is really important. Because if we get it wrong, it will still do something mystically to us and through us to the world, and that might not be something very good. It might not be something we understand. Now, I am certain that you have questions that I have not answered, probably questions that I cannot answer, because Scripture does not give us a manual for how this works. It just tells us that it's a thing. Despite what I've shown you here, the Bible gives us very little information, not nearly as much as our curiosity would like, and I am certain that there are good reasons for that. I don't want to alarm you with this information. Rather, I want you to understand that God gives us rules about how to worship. He shows us patterns 
for how to order the form and the timing of our worship for good, deep reasons that have to do with the purpose of reality and the purpose of the gospel itself and the purpose of humankind as his image on earth. If Christ truly is summing up all things in himself, then worship, true worship, is where that begins. He wants us to rightly participate in the heavenly reality, to be integrated into it so that we can be truly transformed by it, and then we can extend that transformation out into the whole world. That was what Adam was made to do. He was made to take the garden out into the world. And the garden, of course, was a physical expression of the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple, the heavenly throne room. God does not want us to attempt one togetherness with something other than the actual reality of heaven, which is what we would be doing by making up our own form of worship. He does not want us to be mutually participating in the heavenly reality in a way that does not actually mesh with the heavenly reality. It's like gears in a car. You don't just jam them in however you want. You have to line up. You've got to get them aligned. And then in the same way, the form of our worship has to line up, it has to align with the form of heavenly worship if we want to be truly participating in it be truly transformed by it, and be able to truly bring that transformation to the rest of the world. All right, let us sing our next song.